This is our second week in the prophets of the Old Testament, and we've come to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he had such a difficult ministry time, and he served about a hundred years after Isaiah. Remember, the, the prophets don't appear in chronological order at the end of the Old Testament, but they are organized by the size of their books. The major prophets wrote more than the minor prophets, but they ministered at different times. And so Jeremiah comes along about 100 years after Isaiah. He is the author not only of the book that bears his name, Jeremiah, he also is the author of Lamentations and most likely the books of First and Second Kings. But he ministered in a particularly difficult time in Israel's history. The northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes had already fallen to the Assyrians, and Jerusalem itself had become a vassal state of the Assyrian government. But by the time Jeremiah actually finishes his prophetic ministry, the, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, and, and all of its people have been carted off to the city of Babylon, including such notables as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> but I'm sorry getting ahead of the story here. So let me back up. Let me set the stage for what's happening in, in the land of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, when Jeremiah walks across the stage of human history. The moral and the spiritual conditions of Jerusalem had deteriorated terribly. There was a 55-year reign of the king Manasseh, the, the most wicked king that ever sat on the throne in the southern kingdom of Judah. To say he was wicked is really an understatement, folks. And toward the end of his reign, Manasseh so infuriated the Assyrians that they came and they took him and they put a hook through his nose and bronze shackles on his feet and his hands and led him to prison away from Jerusalem. But the die had already been cast. The situation in, in, in the city, the situation in the land was so bad that God's word was going to come to pass, that Judah would pay for her sins, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's what God had prophesied, and it was going to happen. And, and I know when you hear things like that, sometimes people say, that's what I don't like about the God of the Old Testament. He's always angry, and he's always tearing stuff down. I like the God of the New Testament because he's nice, and he's full of grace and mercy. People, it's the same God. God didn't have some epiphany or didn't have some life-threatening illness somewhere between the end of the old and the beginning of the new where he said, I've got to become a kinder, gentler kind of God. He's been the same from the very beginning of time. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was a God of justice and grace in the Old Testament. He is a God of grace and justice in the New Testament. He is the same, <clears throat> and it's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing that there is a consistency about God. As a matter of fact, can I tell you this? That there is probably no better illustration of God's incredible grace than the story of Manasseh himself. This incredibly wicked, nasty king was the recipient of God's amazing grace. The book of 2 Chronicles tells us that once he was in prison, away from Jerusalem, um, and in deep distress, something happened. And let me just read it for you in chapter 33. 
But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, notice this, and when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. The text goes on to relate that Manasseh removed the foreign gods from the temple and tore down the pagan altars that had been built there and threw everything in the city dump. He even restored the altar of God and urged the people to return to God and to worship God. He was trying to lead them in a spiritual revival. This king? Yeah, this king. But the Bible goes on to say in 3317, However, the people still sacrificed at the pagan shrines. Even though the king had had this great turnaround in his life, it didn't impact the people. They still worshipped the idols. Now, don't tell me that God isn't a God of grace in the Old Testament. God did for Manasseh what none of us in this room would have done for such a moral monster. Manasseh had offered infant sacrifices. He had shed innocent blood. He had done more evil in Jerusalem than any king before him. And yet, when he genuinely repented before God, God was moved. And God restored him to the throne in Jerusalem. And some are saying, I'm not sure if I like that. He deserved more punishment. Well, you had better like that story. Because if God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive me, and he can forgive you. If there is a limit on the grace of God, we're all in trouble. So don't tell me again that there is no grace in the Old Testament. Manasseh was living proof. Aren't you glad that God is always moved by genuine repentance and sorrow for sin? Well, Manasseh does die at the end of his 55-year reign, and his son Ammon was as wicked as his father had been. The problem is that when Manasseh came back a changed man, it didn't change Ammon. He was just as wicked and nasty as his dad was when he took to the throne, and he only served two years before his own palace people assassinated him. And it wasn't long before the whole nation was back into this desperate, miserable condition. But even God, in the midst of such dramatic, terrible circumstances, God is able to bring a light of hope into the darkest of corners. And when Ammon was assassinated, his son comes to the throne. His name is Josiah, and Josiah is only eight years old, and he became the most righteous king since the time of David. Now, where did he get that righteousness? Because he certainly didn't get it from his father, Ammon. It's a great possibility that he was tutored in those early years by the great prophet Zephaniah, who instilled within him a love for God and God's word. And so at eight years old, he comes to the throne and things begin to change. His name means the fire of the Lord. And for 31 years, this fire burned brightly in Jerusalem and began to change the nation again. It was a time of spiritual renewal. At the age of 16, Josiah began to seek the Lord. King David became his role model. At age 20, he began to purge the nation of all idols and, and pagan shrines. At the age of 26, he said, we're going to rebuild and restore the temple of God to its grandeur of previous days. And while they were in the process of that, now, 
just imagine this, folks. They're in the process of restoring the temple that had, had fallen into disrepair. And under the rabble and the, and the debris, they find a lost scroll. It's a part of the law of God, and most scholars believe it was the scroll of Deuteronomy. Hilkiah, the high priest, is the one that found the scroll, and he reads it to Josiah, and Josiah tears his robes as a sign of repentance, has it read to the people, and then he says, it's more important that we restore the worship of God than we even restore the temple of God. Now, they went on restoring the temple, but it became his quest to restore the worship of God. The Passover was celebrated for the first time in Jerusalem since the days of Samuel, the last of the judges. Josiah was a breath of fresh air in a spiritually polluted world. And he reigned as an illustration that with God there is hope, even when things seem hopeless. That there can be the light of a brand new fire in the midst of the darkest corner of the world. During Josiah's reign, God held back his promised punishment because good things were happening in Jerusalem. And you ask, well, what does this have to do with Jeremiah? Oh, it has everything to do with Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah grew up in a priestly family. His father's name was Hilkiah. It is very likely that the priest who found the hidden scroll, Hilkiah, was the very father of Jeremiah. And instead of going into the priestly role, God calls him as a teenager and says, I've got a job for you to do. And so he enters the prophetic ministry during the reign of Josiah. He gets to begin under a godly king, and so he has a great foundation to begin with. But when Josiah was killed in a battle with the Egyptians, it doesn't take long for everything to return to the way it was before. And in less than 25 years from the death of Josiah, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and God's people had been carted off to Babylon in captivity. It is during that 25 years of ministry that Jeremiah preached his heart out, was a lone voice crying out to a deafened people, he was not only a powerful preacher, he was a great actor, and some of his most powerful messages were illustrated with dramatic flair. On one occasion, um, Jeremiah took a brand new beautiful linen belt that he'd been wearing, and, and according to God's instruction, he stuffed it down in the crevice of a rock and, and let the elements rain on it and, and, and blow on everything, and then he took it out after some time, and it was nasty and dirty, and he began to wear that belt all the time. Now, you know, the things that you and I wouldn't do and wear out in public, he's wearing out in public because he's communicating to the people, God protected you. He placed you in a crevice. Nevertheless, you became dirty and awful. And my belt is a picture of how you appear to God. Wow. That's been pretty powerful preaching. I, I wonder this morning if God were to have us wear things that would symbolize our heart and our worship before him, what would he have us wear? Jeremiah wore a dirty belt. What would he have us wear? Muddy gloves, perhaps, to represent actions that have soiled our lives? 
shoes and boots that were encrusted with manure, perhaps, reflecting the fact that we had walked in relationships which had caused us to compromise our faith, or we had gone into places that had destroyed our integrity. If Jeremiah walked through those doors this morning to preach to us, what would he be wearing as an illustration of who we are this morning? Make sure that your actions and your deeds and your life and your spirit are a reflection of the beauty of God not the crassness and vulgarity of a broken world. On another occasion, Jeremiah went to watch a potter. This is how he describes it in Jeremiah chapter 18. He said, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And may I suggest to you that like clay in the potter's hand, so are we, the church of Jesus Christ. Whatever vessel God has made you, He made you that way for a purpose. You're not just some cracked pot, all right? You are an honorable vessel created by God for His use. So be genuine. If God made you a plain vessel, don't walk around acting like you're gold-plated. But if God's fashioned you and shaped you as a special, unique vessel with gifts and purposes, don't be neglectful in serving Him. Be who you are. Be who God made you. A seventh grader didn't want to go to school on test day, and so he feigned sickness. His parents suspected that that's what he was doing, so they grabbed the thermometer, thrust it into his mouth, and after taking a reading, the dad turned to his son and said, just as I suspected, it appears that you've got an acute, an acute case of pretenditis. Now, I want to know this morning, how many of you are suffering from a spiritual case of pretenditis? That you are pretending to be who God wants you to be without really being who God created you to be. In this world, the cure is simple. Just live up to your God-given expectations. Be who God made you to be. You and I, after all, are clay in the potter's hands. Let him shape you into the person he knows best who you are. Jeremiah once carried an ox yoke on his soldiers throughout the shoulders throughout the city as a sign that Jerusalem would soon be under the yoke of the Babylonians. On another occasion, he bought a brand new beautiful earthen vase and he gathered all of the elders of the city and they went to the potsherd gate of the city of Jerusalem. Now at that day and time, the potsherd gate, when you opened up the doors, overlooked the valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a, oh, it was a horrible place. It was in the Valley of Hinnom that, that, that there were idols and shrines and people offered human sacrifices. Yes, the Jewish people offered infant and toddler sacrifices to the gods in the Valley of Hinnom. 
As a matter of fact, when we come to the New Testament time, the, the valley of Hinnom had been turned into a uh, refuse dump outside of Jerusalem because of everything that had happened there in the past. They kept the fires burning all the time, and that's where the people went to throw their garbage. In the New Testament, it is the word Gehenna. And it had become a symbol of where the wicked people would go when their life on this earth is over. We don't read the word Gehenna in the New Testament. We read how it's translated. It is the word hell. This is the very place then over which Jeremiah points the elders of Jerusalem. And he says, in this valley, your bodies will soon lie and the birds will pick the flesh from your bones. And then he took that brand new vase and he threw it on the ground on the rocks, it shattered into a hundred pieces. And he said, just like this vase, so the walls of this city will be destroyed and you will not be able to put them back together again. I'm telling you, uh, uh, Jeremiah was a powerful preacher. And, and he was polarizing in his effect because very few, if any, really paid attention to his lesson. Um, he was beaten for his preaching. He was imprisoned for his preaching. He was put into stocks in the public square for his preaching for days on end. Now, I've never been beaten for my preaching. I've never been put into public stocks. I've never been imprisoned for my preaching. I will gladly take sleepers as a response to my preaching in the worship service as a response to what Jeremiah had to put up with. And yet, through all of it, Jeremiah never wavered. Now this is a good reminder, folks, that serving God isn't always exciting, warm, and fuzzy, or easily accomplished. Sometimes it's just tough staying true to the God of the heavens in a world that is often opposed to Him. But staying true to Him is always the right thing, and it always makes a difference. Jeremiah was ignored, even declared a traitor during most of his earthly ministry, but he kept right on preaching whatever God gave him to preach. But he wasn't alone in his prophetic suffering. Even Isaiah, the great palace preacher of a hundred years before, suffered. As a matter of fact, Isaiah died during the early part of Manasseh's wicked reign. Do you know how he died? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 37 alludes to it. Isaiah was strapped between two boards and sawn in two. And yet both of them, what they preached, came to pass. Both of them were right. As a matter of fact, all the prophets are right. The, 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 the majority was wrong. The prophets, the minority, were right. Can I remind you, do not take the word of the majority. Sometimes it's a lot easier to go along with the crowd, but the crowd is seldom right. God always is. Nothing supersedes the truth of our God. Let me give you one last glimpse into Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Shortly before the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Zedekiah is now on the throne and God gave, through the prophet Jeremiah, Zedekiah one last chance to follow his word. As a matter of fact, it, it justified everything that any nation would want. Jeremiah goes to Zedekiah and he says, here's the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord says, if you will surrender to the Babylonians, the city of Jerusalem will not be destroyed. Well, none of his military leaders liked that idea. As a matter of fact, Zedekiah didn't like the idea either. I mean, it sounded treasonous. Surrender to the enemy Never. 
But Jeremiah was only saying what God had told him to say. His words promised triumph and hope if only they would do what did not seem natural. Surrender, and God would make sure that the city was spared. The military leaders were so angry that they took Jeremiah and they threw him down into an old cistern where his feet got stuck in the muck and the mire of that cistern. They were going to leave him down there to starve to death. Thankfully, Jeremiah had a friend, Ebed-Melech, an official in the royal palace who begged for Jeremiah's release. Eventually, the king granted his freedom. And it is interesting to me that when Jeremiah is taken from the old cistern there in Jerusalem, that King Zedekiah wanted a private meeting with him. And so here comes Jeremiah, all covered with mud and muck from being down inside that cistern for days I think, I think the king secretly believed Jeremiah. He was just afraid of his people more than he was afraid of God. And so he wanted to hear something from Jeremiah about the impending doom. And Jeremiah said, your wives are going to say to you, you've been duped by your closest friends, that your feet are stuck in the mud. That must have made an impression from a prophet standing there with mud all over him. But Zedekiah refused. The city was conquered. The king and his soldiers were overtaken. The soldiers, the nobles, the king's own officials, and the king's sons were all executed right in front of Zedekiah's eyes, and then they took a sword, hot sword, and gouged out Zedekiah's eyes and led him off. It cost him everything. The city was destroyed, only Jeremiah out of that whole crew was spared. Now, he, there were some of the people of the, of the city that were spared to left and left to work the ground, but Jeremiah lived to see the word of the Lord come true. How did the nation of Judah get to such a low point? In chapter 2, Jeremiah writes of Judah in the first person as if God is talking, and this is what he says, for my people have done two evil things. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Let me remind you, folks, you drink from the fountain of living water. You draw your strength, your spiritual guidance, your life principles from the living water, which is Jesus Christ, and stay away from cracked and broken cisterns of this world that offer you nothing but foul-tasting refreshment. Can I give you just a couple things that come out of this text to me? First one is find a trusted friend. Develop a close friendship with someone who shares your faith and values. There's going to be a day and time when you will desperately need somebody to come alongside of you and help out. Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian servant to the king, was a close and trusted friend to Jeremiah. Jeremiah might have died in that cistern had it not been for a good friend who would not give up on him and who believed the same things that he was preaching. You see, you can't put a price tag on that kind of a relationship. In life, you will need someone to talk to. You will need someone whose counsel is trustworthy. You will need someone who will stand beside you in the tough times and get you through. Helen Keller, who became blind and deaf at 19 months of age, later in life said, walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. There will be dark days in your life. You better have a godly friend to lean on. 
Here's the second thing, and that is trust God's truth. Do not lean on the advice that comes from ungodly sources. Zedekiah was taken in by his own godless advisors, and it cost him everything. It cost him his throne, his kingdom, his family, and his eyesight. And it cost his advisors their very lives. So don't be taken in, even though something from God may say, I'm not sure I understand that. God's word is faithful and true. Worldly advice is just that. It's worldly advice. Don't base your life or your future on it. Over the years, I've, um, I've read several fortune cookies, never paid much attention to any of them, never kept any of them, but I did keep the message out of one. One fortune cookie I opened said this, truth will stand the test of experience. Wow, is that accurate. It is not my experience in life that determines or defines truth. Truth stands because it is true regardless of what my experiences are in life. Truth is not created. Truth is discovered. God's truth stands the test of time and experience. Jeremiah's preaching proved that. When the dust settled on the rubble that had once been the city of Jerusalem, God's word had once again been proven true. Make sure you learn that in life. Trust him, his word is truth. We, we look at Jeremiah's prophecies and we see that every one of them came to pass. Uh, I don't know if, if, uh, if, if you hadn't been reminded this week that it was the 50th anniversary of uh, the assassination of uh, President John F. Kennedy, then, then you've been living under a rock. It's been on the news, it's been in the papers, there have been all kinds of programming on TV brought back to, to mind where I was when I heard the news as a kid in, uh, in grade school. But it also brought back to mind Gene Dixon. Gene Dixon, in my lifetime, has been the most famous psychic or astrologer. She gained global fame during that time because she had predicted the death of the president. She made the rounds of the talk shows and continued to write her astrology columns and was afforded celebrity status for her unique and powerful predictive gifts. And everybody made everything over Jean Dixon. Now, you got, you, this is what you got to understand. It's not very specific. As a matter of fact, Parade Magazine in 1956 revealed what her prophecy was, and, and they had this to write in the article. It said, as for the 1960 election, Mrs. Dixon thinks it will be dominated by labor and won by a Democrat, and he'll be assassinated or die in that office, though not necessarily in his first term. So, I mean, there are some unique things about it, to be sure, but it's a little bit nebulous. It's a little bit broad in that, but it was when President Kennedy was assassinated that her fame was, just was vaulted to, to global stardom. I've never ceased to be amazed at people's gullibility. So little evidence for so much notoriety. But then, folks, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> Let me share with you some of her other predictions. That the Soviet Union would beat the U.S. to the moon. World War III would begin in 1958. 1980 would usher in another holocaust, and then Rome would rise to become the world's foremost center of culture, learning, and religion. She also predicted a cure for cancer in 1967, said that Richard Nixon would serve well as president of the United States, and that peace, total peace, would come to the earth by the year 2000. <laughs> so much for prophetic accuracy. But God's accuracy? 100%. 
Jeremiah 10.10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God, the everlasting God, and that you can count on forever. Despite his many trials and sorrows, Jeremiah could still write these powerful words. This is one of my favorite passages of his writing. Lamentations chapter 3, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. As we approach our holiday of Thanksgiving this week, shouldn't our attitude reflect those very verses? Consider the message of Jeremiah. Throughout his ministry, he tried to convince the Hebrew people that more than anything, they needed to depend on God. And we need to learn the same lesson. It's our dependence that matters. On the 4th of July, we Americans celebrate our independence. On the 4th Thursday of November, we celebrate our dependence. You see, Thanksgiving is so much more than a day of feasting and football. The pilgrims did not celebrate with the idea that they were creating the first national holiday for a future nation. They celebrated and worshiped God with grateful hearts because they knew God had blessed them in this new land. Amidst all the death and the dying and the suffering, they still celebrated because Thanksgiving is an attitude, a way of life that ought to permeate our daily existence. Thanksgiving that is recognized only once a year is really not too gratitude. Even the biggest grouch can be thankful one day out of 365. A daily attitude of thanksgiving is what God is looking for in all of us. Edward Martin wrote, he said, Thanksgiving Day comes by statute once a year. To the honest man, it comes as frequently as the heart of gratitude will allow. So here's the bottom line, folks. You can focus on being greedy or grateful, thankless or thankful, being independent are being dependent on God. Your focus will make all the difference. And when you learn to depend on God and the truth of His Word, you'll discover that you have every reason to thank Him for all of your blessings. Indeed, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness.